All right, we're in John, and we're doing a series, verse by verse, and this is part 11 in the series, and the title of this message is called The Call to See Christ. I think last week it was Born to See Christ, speaking of the spiritual birth, and this is sort of part two of that. I just want to make the title a little bit different. We've been looking at verse 13, so let's start reading at um, verse 11. I think next week... The plan is, I'd like to get through verse 13 today. The plan next week is to have the Lord's Supper. And because the message has to do with the incarnation, verse 14 talks about the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It would go great with the Lord's Supper. We haven't had the Lord's Supper in a while. So that's the plan. Let's start reading in verse 11. I'm reading from the modern King James Version. He came into it, speaking of Christ, he came into his own and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, he gave them the authority or power or right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were born, speaking spiritually, not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. Now, last week we started looking at some distinctions between two types of calls. They have to do with the gospel, the general call and the effectual call. And we, I'm going to define those again for you so you can keep them in your memory. The general call is the call that we give as human beings when we tell other people the gospel. It's human beings declaring the gospel outwardly to the physical ear of people. They hear it. And several other means, you know, reading material, tracks, CDs, you name it. Anything that gets that gospel to people in a general way. Indiscriminately, promiscuously, preach the gospel to to every creature, as the Great Commission says. That's the general call. And that call, we can't make it, we humans can't make it effective. We, We can't get in people's heads, in other words, and cause them to believe what we are saying, the truth that we're declaring from the Scripture. Only God can do that, which is the second part, the effectual call. Some people call it the efficacious call. Some say it's an internal call or an inward call. And what it is is God powerfully calls all of his people, the elect, his sheep, his remnant, his people, his chosen various synonyms for those people, those that were chosen to be saved before the foundation of the world. The means to bring them to himself is for them to believe the gospel. So he has to get this effectual call done to them and in them for them to come to him and believe the gospel. It's God powerfully calling his elect inwardly and irresistibly imparting to them spiritual life, giving them spiritual life because of the spiritual death that they're in. So that they can understand, believe, and love the truth of the gospel of Christ. And this effectual call is just that. It's effectual. It's effective. It works 100% of the time. If it didn't work 100% of the time, you couldn't use that term effectual. If something fails, it can't be effectual. So we know that everything God does in salvation, when he does it, between the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, every aspect of salvation is effectual because he does it. I can guarantee you that is the difference between this small church here and any other church you can find in this area is our belief that salvation is of the Lord 100% and that every aspect of it is effectual and mankind does not affect it. It happens to man. Man does not cooperate and add part B to part A to make it effectual. That's salvation by grace. That's what that is. In our articles of faith on our website, there's a paragraph here I'm going to read under the section of irresistible grace or efficacious grace, some call it, which is vitally connected to this effectual call. Irresistible or efficacious grace refers to the application of salvation to the elect whereby they are made actual partakers of salvation and experience spiritual life. This is sure and certain because of the Lord Christ's death on the cross. This application is the effectual call 
of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. God the Holy Spirit is the sovereign agent who quickens or gives life to the spiritually dead sinner. The gospel is preached, then heard and understood by the quickened sinner being the means and power of God unto salvation. So let me just throw a, a qualifier in there. The last sentence I read, read kind of quick, but we believe that Scripture says mankind, those that come into this world, they're dead in trespasses and sins. They can't understand. They don't know. They don't approach God. We looked at Romans 3, all those, those four things, none good, none righteous, none that understandeth, none that seek after God. So it's in man's dead state, there is an inability, a natural inability, and God has to go and rescue those people. So there has to be life given, imparted spiritual life given first in order for people to believe. We don't teach here that the gospel that we preach, that when we cast it out, people believe it, and then they merit or gain spiritual life by doing that. Uh, that's getting the cart before the horse. There has to be life given, understanding imparted, and you know it works that way. There has to be an ability, and there has to be eyes to see. That's the faith that we've, we've been talking about. Let's look at a few texts here that talk about this uh, effectual call. Romans chapter 8 is, is a place we can look at. Among the people that believe and teach like we teach, this is a popular section of Scripture that people would go to. It's a very familiar area. Starting in verse 28, which a lot of times is a very comforting text when things are going wrong in our lives, when we seemingly forget that God's in control and He's on our side and He's for us. Verse 28 in Romans 8, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Those are the elect of God, those that are chosen. And here it gives the span of salvation that stretches before time, comes into time, and goes after time. This is a broad view of salvation. And there are five things mentioned here. And right smack in the middle is what we're talking about. It talks about being called. But verse 29 starts out with uh, the foreknowledge of God. Whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, for him to be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, without preaching the whole message again on foreknowledge, which we have before, we've talked about it several times, we've looked at several different harmonious texts that talk about God's foreknowledge. It's not merely prescience. It's not his omniscience, which we do believe in his omniscience. He knows all things, and he knows all things before they happen. But this word foreknew has to do with a, a foreordaining, or the word know especially, has to do with affection. And we ran this all through the scriptures, and we saw how this word was used in dealing with affection. We actually talked about it last week to the negative side. Depart from me, I never knew you. And it's referring to those people that would approach God at judgment that were using their works as the ground of their salvation. He was saying, I never knew you. I, I didn't have a relationship with you. Wouldn't it be kind of silly for Christ, who is the judge in the last day, who is omniscient, to scratch his head and say, I'm drawing a blank here. I, you know, my mind, my omniscient mind never, never knew you. It's not talking about that kind of knowledge because he knows all things. He knew everything about that guy before that guy was even born and did his works for salvation that he was trying to do. So it's talking about a relationship, an affection. We see another text where it says, Adam knew Eve and they bare a son and his name was Cain. So there was an affection there. It's not like Adam stumbled on Eve and said, hey, who are you? And all of a sudden they had a baby. It has to do with affection, relationship. And that's what it is here. God has this, before we were born, has this knowledge, an intimate knowledge, relationship, a love. He set his affection on these people. And that started the process. 
election, which is not mentioned here, which is vitally tied to predestination, which is the next thing mentioned. This chain that keeps going. Verse 30, but whom he predestinated, these he also called, and whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. The main thing I want us to see here, besides this proof text talking about a calling, is out of these five things, I want us to see just briefly how that they all, the same people that he's talking about, they all move along to the next thing. Those people he foreknew, these same people, all, without exception, move to the category of being predestinated. That same group all move to the category of being called. And that same amount move to the category of being justified. And that same amount move to the category of being glorified. God was the one that sovereignly, monergistically was was energizing this whole work of salvation. It's 100% effectual. It's effective. It's going to work. It's not going to fail. And these people have nothing to do with their own salvation. So no, they're not dropping off as they switch to each category. It's all of grace, not of works. God ensures that the same amount from the very beginning are at the end where they're going to be glorified. In the middle there is they're called. And this is talking about this effectual call. Now, we know it's not talking about the general call because we looked at a verse last week and we ran it through the test and showed how that that verse couldn't mean effectual call. It wouldn't make sense. Many are called, but few are chosen. That's the general call. I would say statistically, when it, you look at numbers and odds, the vast majority of people that we preach to are not going to believe. We talked about the few versus the many. So here is the effectual call. If he effectually calls, then they will be justified. They will be, in other words, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ will be transferred legally and charged to their account, and they will be declared righteous. They're justified. And, of course, those people will be secure, and they will be in glory after time is no more. So that's eternal security or preservation or however you want to call it. There's the effectual call, how that fits in the whole stream of salvation, before time, in time, and after time. Some who are fatalists would say, yeah, you people, you believe in predestination. If you believe in predestination, why, why do people even have to believe the gospel? It's right here. So it says that they do and they will. He uses this call as part of the means to draw his people out unto himself. That verse I keep quoting, John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. He that comes to me, I will no wise cast out. That's saying the same thing this verse is saying. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. Titus chapter 3 has another verse that has this call, this life-giving um, experience described in it. This is a very popular text too. And by the way, these ones I'm quoting are the ones that we use in our Articles of Faith on our website that describe this section in Irresistible Grace. Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared toward men, and there's a comma, then it goes into some description. Now this is not talking about all people without exception, because it gives this little caveat here. This uh, it qualifies what he's talking about by inserting the people that I'm talking about that experience that this happens to them. Verse five: Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. And how was that done? And notice here: This is what we're getting at. This is part of the effectual call: irresistible grace. Through the washing of regeneration, that's, that's the new birth. That's the impartation of life. Another word in the scripture is quickening, passing from death unto life. There's all kinds of synonyms that go with that. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. 
that being justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So you see the, the language here is similar to what we just read in Romans 8 because these people are called and they're justified. Same language here. They're regenerated, renewed by the Holy Spirit. And it said that being justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this is poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. The Spirit does it, but Christ laid out the groundwork for the Spirit to be enabled to do it. The Spirit is life because of righteousness, Romans 8.10 tells us. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, another popular verse, which maybe some of you have it memorized. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord. Now, this is Paul writing a letter to the church at Thessalonica, and he's qualifying what he's saying. Usually he starts out, and I, I don't have, I cut and paste it on the front of me, but usually he starts out his letters by calling them who they are, saints, believers, beloved of the Lord. And here he uses language that says, I'm talking to you people that are my brothers and who are loved of the Lord. Because God has from the beginning chose you to salvation. And then it says, it goes on here to get into our topic. Through the sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. The sanctification of the spirit is a setting apart one by imparting life to them. Because not everybody has life imparted to them. Because we're dead by nature. So the spirit comes makes a distinction between a dead person and a live person by sanctifying them, setting them apart by granting them or imparting to them spiritual life so that they can believe the truth. The fruit of regeneration and sanctification, these things are faith, repentance, things like this, which has to do with an understanding, eyes that they can see to believe the truth. Verse 14, to which he called you by our gospel. There again is the means that goes against that fatalistic idea that God doesn't. See, God is not, this whole idea when we talk about sovereign grace, how that we talk about how that God does it all. And the scripture we just looked at, the. there's not just one text on predestination. And it talks about salvation by sovereign mercy and all these things that talk about sovereign grace. The scriptures usually in those contexts connect up means directly connected to them to dispel this fatalistic myth. The, the other idea is, well, if God's controlling everything, why pray? Why preach? Why pray? What they're implying is God really is not controlling everything, and you control things by what you do. So forget about that sovereign grace idea. Put your works back into it. And God is not really on a throne. You're partially on a throne, so get busy. You're God. He's not fully God. Salvation is not effectual. It's part A, part B. Get busy. Unless you do your part, it's not going to happen. That's what they're implying. But God has a goal. He declares the end from the beginning. And there are means from A to B. And he has predestined every single part of the means in between. And that's not hard to understand. It's not hard to see. It's all over the scripture. Chosen you from beginning to salvation. He didn't stop there. And Paul didn't say, well, I'm going to seal up my letter and I'm done. No, he says, through the sanctification of the spirit, belief of the truth, which he called you by our gospel. He didn't ditch the means. Second Timothy 1. All these texts are pretty much saying the same thing, but just in a different way. Letters written to different people. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. This is the effectual call. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now, it didn't say here that Christ saved us 
before the world began. It didn't say that he saved us before the world began. It says that he saved us and called us with a holy calling, comma, not according to our works, comma, and it has to do with his purpose. And it just talks about when his purpose took place in reference to the connection to us in Christ on the behalf of Christ, because of Christ, for Christ's sake. That was before time began. He loved us before time. He chose us before time. He predestined us before time. And those things were mentioned in Romans. And then the outworking of that, here comes the call. Through the means of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is brought into our conscious awareness. We subjectively know and understand now because of what has God has done from the outside into us, given us life to wake us up to see it and experience it. So in other words, it's, this is not a mystical thing where uh, I've heard people say those that are called hyper-Calvinists, which some primitive Baptists are hyper-Calvinists who are fatalists. And they would say, we well, you know the elect sometimes will go their whole life and they'll be regenerated by God. They'll go through the rest of their life, not even know it. And they'll end up in heaven, and they didn't even know it. There's nothing in Scripture that, that would indicate anything near that. I've heard people, too, a debater guy that I, I got to know when I lived in Middletown that debated, who's a primitive Baptist. And I got to learn some of their doctrine, see where they were coming from. Not that I agreed with it, but just wanted to know to warn other people about this error. Very, very mystical. They hated knowledge. They hated theology when it came to what the scripture said, that eternal life is knowing God. Well, they reject that outright. They'd say eternal life happened before the foundation of the world, and it's taken care of. That's done. That's all. You don't have to worry. Really, anything else that happens in this life is just a bonus. That's what they say. And they would discount all the means, and they would mystify everything that they talked about. And even those that claim they're consciously aware of their salvation, they'll, the means, they'll muddy it up. They'll say, yeah, I was out getting my garbage. And I looked up and I saw some, it was some crazy stuff he saw in the sky. It had nothing to do with the gospel. He would just, it had to do with feelings and sensationalism. So this is the road that you go down when you start mystifying things and twisting the scripture and gutting out the means. Verse 10, 2 Timothy 1.10, but referring to this purpose, but is now having been manifest or made known by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel shows us these things, what Christ did. So his eternal purpose is always made manifest, made known to people consciously. And we do that in the, we talk about the different levels man's mind how that when we preach the gospel we say the words to people we can explain this to people what happened but they can look at it and just be hearing it with their ears stuffed up scales on their eyes like they're looking through the back of your head without understanding and they'll just shake their head yeah you understand you're thinking that they're not getting it they're glossed over they're not agreeing at the seemingly the times you think they should be agreeing after a while you uh, get to understanding whether or not people really heard what you said at that funeral the other day some people came up to me and made some comments and i thought i just smiled and thought you didn't hear anything i said but, you know, I tried to follow up with a few comments, questions, and to see where they're at, give out some cards, and hopefully some of the family will talk to them. But that's been our experience over the years. If you heard what I said or what the scripture says, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be listening to this person. You wouldn't be making these comments. Things seem to eventually line up to where you can see blatant consistency or inconsistency. So all eternal purposes work themselves out by God through the means that he appoints. So again, the fruit of this call, the fruit of the effectual call is faith and repentance. Somebody says, well, how do I know I'm one of God's chosen? Faith and repentance is the evidence. It's the outworking of the evidence of the means that God operates in his people. 
how that he calls them out from among the world and makes them to differ. John 10, let's look there. This is a text that talks about the sheep and the shepherd. Christ is the shepherd of the sheep. Verse 24, then the Jews encircled him. They always like to fight and, and debate with Christ. And they said to him, how long do you make us doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, said, I told you and you didn't believe. Now, Christ is not lying here. He previously had talked about his person and work, what he was here to do, what his goal was on earth. He said, I already told you, and you didn't believe. That's how dull of thinking they were. He already did tell them. They didn't say, you know, Jesus, they wouldn't call him Christ if they didn't believe he was the Christ, because that's what they're asking here. But they didn't say, you know, Jesus, you were kind of unclear about what you said. They got mad previous to this about what he was saying. He says, the works, the middle of verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you did not believe me. Notice this. Why didn't they believe? But you did not believe me because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice. So here he's indicating to these people the reason that they didn't believe. Really, you could say what he's saying is you can't believe because you're not my sheep. Because there's evidence of who my sheep are. They hear my voice, verse 27, and I know them. There's the word know, relationship, knowledge. Because Christ knows omnisciently the goats. There's the sheep and the goats. Christ knows both. But this kind of know is the relationship, the affection. I know my sheep. He cares for his sheep. They follow me. And because he loves them and knows them, what does he do for them? Verse 28, and I give to them eternal life. If he loved the goats, he would give them eternal life too. Whoever he loves, he's going to give eternal life to. We just read that in Romans 8. Whom he foreknew, he predestinated, called, justified, glorified. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and not anyone shall pluck them out of my hand. My Father, who gave them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. My Father and me are part of the Trinity. We are one in essence and attributes. He's saying, I am God, is what he's saying here too. I'm the God-man mediator. I'm the express image of my Father, it says in Hebrews 1. The very book we're looking at, John 1, it talks about, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God himself. The Word was with God, the one he's talking about he's one with, the Father. So he keeps defending his deity. So there I just ran through, what is that, like five different texts there, something like that, that showed this effectual call. And these here, these Jews that he was talking to at the end here, they could not hear his voice. All they could hear was the general call that he had previously given that they were acting dumb about, like they act like they didn't hear it. And here it shows, again, more language here about if he had care and concern for them in reference to eternal salvation they would be hearing they would be following and they would have eternal life they should never perish nobody pluck them out of their father's hand but he's talking about his sheep and these guys couldn't believe because they weren't of his sheep go to Romans Romans chapter 2 and when you're there I'm gonna read part of our text that we're looking at in verse 13 John 1 13 which says which were born the first section is not of blood, which are born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but of God, which are born not of blood. Romans 2, uh, toward the end there, we're going to read in a second, but bloodline, we already, we already examined bloodline through other parts of John. Remember those guys were saying, I think it was in chapter 5, we're of our father Abraham, others would, would boast of being connected to Moses. Christ said, you're not of your father Abraham, you're not even of my father, you're of your father the devil. So bloodline didn't do anything for those people. 
lineage, bloodline, race, none of that matters. And even today, I stumbled across some garbage online. Some people act like they're the lost tribe of Israel and they've stumbled over here in America. And now I, some of the, I think some of the Mormons even take that idea that they're the lost tribe and it's mostly white people. And I've also heard other people try to identify with Africa and say that the black person was the first person and we were in Garden of Eden and we're the ones that did the pyramids and all that. So you've got white and black people and probably, I don't know, some Indians probably claim Adam was, he's called Red Man, so Indians are first, you know. I don't know what the Asian people say, but <laughs> none of it matters. Galatians, we've read it recently, that the seed of Abraham are those that believe the promise. There's neither male nor female, bond nor free, Jew or Gentile. It's those that believe the promise. It has nothing to do with physical. It's spiritual. It says the same thing right here in Romans 2. Look at verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and a circumcision is of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. It's interesting that he would add the redundant language that we always see in all the other texts whose praise is not from men, but from God. Isn't that what it's saying in verse 13? We're born, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. So here it's talking about the work of the Spirit, the inward call, the effectual call, God giving life to the sinner to see. And who gets the credit? Whose praise is not from men, but from God. How many times does it take for God to say these things like this. Are you waiting for the time that finally it didn't match? <laughs> it keeps matching. It's consistent. So bloodline doesn't matter. The only blood that matters is Christ's blood, the perfect, satisfying sacrifice of Christ's blood. The second part in that verse, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. You know, Paul said that in my flesh dwells no good thing. We know that we are not saved by the flesh. You see negative terms in the scripture about this person, instead of trusting in God, leaning on God, he leaned on the arm of the flesh. That's a phrase that's in the scripture. It's not a positive phrase. It's something you want to not do. So there's nothing good in the flesh. Corruption. I'm not necessarily talking about this physical flesh that's skin and blood. It's, it's the idea of who we are. It's fleshly ideas of the mind. Because that's who we are. We are in our mind who we are. You go to a funeral, you see a person in a casket, and you see a shell. That's not who they were or are. What was in their mind is who they are. That's the important part. Of course, that's our biggest problem is when we come to this world is our fleshly mind. And that's what has to be changed at the new birth. And that's what God does with his effectual call. That's where he changes who we are, at least in our conscious being. So nothing dwelling in our flesh can be profitable. It's only corrupt. Nothing can be transferred in any spiritual power. For example, my children or my wife or anybody I choose to set my affection on or my attention to. I can't, from human to human, it's not transferable as far as merit's concerned. I can't born my kids again. I can't born my wife again. I can't, like I mentioned, as you're witnessing to people, I don't care if you spend now to the rest of that person's life every day, every second preaching, you can't transfer knowledge and understanding to them. You can't born them again. The Spirit does it. It's like Christ said to Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it wants. You can't tell where it's coming from. You can't control it. So in me, as a, not that I'm any different from anybody, but I, I pastor a church. And there's not even any kind of secret powers with being a pastor and being able to transfer things on people. If somebody's sick, Rob could just as well pray for a sick person. It, it's like when I approach a sick person, well, here's the pastor, let him pray. That's not the way it works. So there's nothing in anybody's flesh that's any different or any better or, or that's effectual at all. 
nothing inherited, nothing generational, nothing good. We can't even denominationally, we can't play a denominational card. I remember I used to use the term Calvinist when I was younger a lot, referring to the five points that we hold to, the, the tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, preservation. It was a quick identifier. Yeah, this guy's a Calvinist, so okay, you've got something in common to talk about. Remember my son when he was eight or nine. Dad, we're Calvinists, so we're, we're okay, right? We're going to be okay at judgment. He implied that to me. I said, no, no, you don't get it. And I had to unwind that for him. You can't just grab a, a label and, and wear it and say, I'm taking this to judgment. This is why I'm wearing this label. It don't work. That's kind of a fleshly idea. It can't be bought with money or influence. I've seen, I think, in the book of Acts where this guy saw some healing and miracles going on and said, I'll take some of that and pull out some money. It's not going to work. That's flesh. That's a fleshly idea. That's a fleshly method. Fleshly means. That's humanism. And humanism opposes faith. The latter part of that verse says, which were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. And this just I put the thing on the board there, really, that's kind of the what the mind is. The heart is is the mind, will, and the affections. None of that is worth anything as being meritorious to being born again. Actually, the heart, Scripture says, is desperately wicked, says in Jeremiah. And the promise of the new covenant is that God actually takes out the old heart and puts in a new heart so that the mind and will of the affections are centered on Christ and his gospel and the way of grace. Because before that, the darkened heart has these fleshly ideas. So no zeal, no sincerity, or any other willful desire, no matter how strong it is, no matter how clean it may look, that seen coming from the will of man is not enough to affect salvation. Let's go quickly to Romans 9. And this is probably the one verse in verse 16 that would pop up in everybody's mind that's familiar with sovereign grace of how that God saves sinners. And when he talks about how that he saves sinners, a lot of times in the inspired word of God, he'll say how salvation is not. I mean, think about the popular Ephesians 2. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works. So the contrast is always shown there. He does the same thing here in Romans 9. And I'm going to shorten it, not read as much as I was going to, but look in verse 15. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. That's a quote out of uh, Exodus 33. And he's telling Moses, Moses said, show me your glory. One of the first things he says is, I'm going to talk about my sovereignty. That's part of my glory. He says, I'll do what I want with who I want, when I want, why I want, how I want. I'll show mercy on whom I want, and if I don't want to, I don't have to. And Moses is like, that's his glory. That's part of his glory. The fact that he is sovereign and he, he doesn't have to, but out of his love, he shows forth his mercy to some. So then, verse 16, and this is it, this is clear. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, which has to do with works, but of God that shows mercy. For the scripture said unto Pharaoh, even in the same purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be declared throughout the earth. He just used Pharaoh to show his power. He's just giving examples of people that he's not showing mercy to. He raised Pharaoh up just to show his power. Therefore, verse 18, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he goes further in what people would consider negative. And whom he will, he hardens which we see other texts we won't go into. It talks about blinding people, sending strong delusion. And these are the people that are in the goat category that are not his sheep. His sheep that he knows that he takes care of and he saves through mercy. This is his glory. This is the only God that's available. So let's warm up to him. I'm God and there's none else. There's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. 
ancient things have not yet come to pass. This is Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. He's saying, wake up, people. This is the only God available. This is the only God available. The rest of Romans 9, there's some more stuff, redundant language that talks about that salvation is by grace and not by works. It's by mercy, God's sovereign mercy that is unobligated. I'm going to read a couple more. You can jot these down as we're running out of time. But in Colossians 2, it talks about religion, how that certain things that were required in times past and other religious ideas. He said those ideas were nailed to the cross when Christ died. And in Colossians 2.20 says, Wherefore, verse 20, Colossians 2.20, Wherefore, if you being dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though you're living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Now, this is part of a question. It's going it's to continue to flow, but he puts in brackets here. Here's some of the things you've subjected yourself to for whatever reason. This is religion. Taste not, touch not, handle not. It's rules concerning food and different activities. This is what religion is. Taste not, touch not, handle not. That's the scribes and Pharisees' religion. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't chew. I don't hang out with people that do. Right? That's a kind of a popular saying. And you know what? I don't recommend smoking or chewing either one, really. It's not the greatest thing for you to do. But if you start talking about those things and start branching off, you're going to have to be a scientist, a dietitian, and a lawyer. And you're still not going to make it to heaven because you don't know everything there is to know about the best thing for you. And even if you did, you couldn't do it. It's just like all those laws in the Old Testament, the 600 and however many, 13 or whatever. Those people couldn't do that. It's a dream. They're out of their mind. And there's some people that think that they keep those things. Taste not, touch not, handle not. And notice this, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. So that's the follow-up of the question, which started in the 20. Why are, in other words, they're saying, why are you subject to these things? Why are you putting yourself under these laws that are going to perish anyway when you use them and they don't work? And by the way, Christ already nailed them to the cross. Earlier on, he was talking about new moons and Sabbaths and different things like that. Now notice here, he says in verse 23, which things have indeed a show of wisdom. They aren't wisdom in and of themselves. But they, you, you can put on a show with them that you're wise. And the King James says, a show of wisdom in will worship. These people are worshiping their own will by participating in the rudiments of the world and subjecting themselves to the ordinances of men, commandments of men and doctrines of men by neglecting their, and it says here, a show of humility and, and a show of neglecting of the body. And not in any honor to satisfying the flesh. Will worship. In a nutshell, it's what it is. Will worship. That's what people do in religion too. They say, you know what? I know I read these texts that say that God's will be done. That God has decreed and purposed and has a pleasure and has a, a perspective and has means. and all these. He's doing all these things. He's on his throne. I see all this. I understand that. But really, I've decided, concluded, that my will... It's really what matters. And as they preach their messages, they'll say, and this is the typical Armenian conditionalist's free will religion that says, this is election and predestination. That the devil has voted against you. God has voted for you. And it's up to you to cast the deciding vote between those two who have eternally battled for your soul. So it's up to you. It's on your plate. Go ahead. Go. And you exercise your mind, your will, and affections. And ding, 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 ding. You get credit. You won. Because poor old God, he was wanting to save you. And the devil was fighting for you too. That, that's a pitiful false God. God irresistibly saves. His sheep do hear his voice. Just like Lazarus come forth. Christ raised him up. We are spiritually resurrected with the same power that it took to raise up Christ. We're given life. We're given light. We're given eyes. By the time we have those eyes, as I said before, it's too late. And we don't fight against it. We just say, daggone, how did I get to this point? How, how did I let God do that to me? No, it's like, thank you. <laughs> I 
I see where I was headed. I was headed straight to hell. And now I have a life. I have Christ, the creator, the provider, the sustainer, the one that controls all things, the only one that can put away sin. This is my King of kings and Lord of lords, my Savior. I am now in the family of God. We're not going to say, why would you do that to me? I, I didn't necessarily want that. Why didn't you ask permission? That's goofy. But that's what religion implies. Two more real quick. Psalm 110. It's got some, it's loaded with some language that has to do with the covenant. Psalm 110.1, my version uses the, the name Jehovah, which is Lord, modern King James. Jehovah said unto my, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies as your footstool. David writing this on the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, and this was talked about in Acts in one of the messages, and it's like they were preaching this. And well, who's he talking about? He's talking about Christ. Jehovah shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion to rule in the midst of your enemies. And notice this. This is why I brought us here. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power. Jehovah or the Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are speaking to Christ, the Father speaking to the Son. You are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's in Hebrews, and we know what that means. This is talking about the Father appointing Christ to be the sent one, to go be the high priest, to be the priest and the sacrifice, to do the work of salvation after the order of Melchizedek, which means no mother, no father, no start, no end, came out of nowhere. Just like Christ did through Mary, through the seed of the Spirit. No earthly father. A priest forever. He's now at the right hand of the Father making intercession for his people. But verse 3, your people shall be willing in the day of your power. That's that day of the, the effectual call. The power, same again, same power took Christ to raise up from the dead, operates in the person's heart with the power of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God and salvation. It's a bunch of ruckus going on, spiritual ruckus going on at the same time, and God's orchestrating. And he brings his people to life to see Christ, who is this high priest that he's talking about. Last one, James chapter 1. And let me quote one while you're going there. In Romans eleven twenty nine, it says, The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Now, there was a phrase in Psalm 110 talks about, the Lord's going to do something. He's not going to repent. In other words, he's not changing his mind about it. And here when it says gifts and calling of God are without repentance. In other words, when God decides to give something to his people, he does it in such a way that he's not changing his mind. He's not going to take it back. God's not ashamed of the things he's done. He has the time ahead of time to think about it in his infinite wisdom to say, you know what, I think this is the best thing to do. And I'm going to sovereignly, powerfully do it. And he does it. And he really doesn't get counsel from anybody else before he does it. He really doesn't care who replies against him because the nations are as a drop in the bucket to him, says in Daniel. James 1 and verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. And again, this is related to he's unchangeable. What is that word? What is that systematic theology word? He's immutable, right? Now connect that with just what we talked about. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He doesn't change his mind about this. Salvation, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. One unit in God's mind. One straight thought. These are my people. They're going to get these things. They're going to be with me. Nobody's going to stop it. We can bank on it. So every good gift comes from this one who initiated it. And look here as he describes it further in verse 18. That's why I brought us here. And of his own will. This is what our text says. They were born of the will of God. Of his own will. He begat us, born us again, quickened us, gave us life. With the word of truth, 
his own sovereign deity as God and powerfully imparts spiritual life with the means of the word of life or the word of truth, the power of God and the salvation, for us to be certain first fruit of his creatures. Just another proof text showing that we're born of the will of God, not of the flesh, not of the will of man, not of blood, but of God. Rob, I think, read in the scripture reading the week before, talking about having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the living word of God. And this is the word preached unto you as the gospel. I'm liking how these messages in their context are. They're very, very strong, and things just keep unfolding to show you know, who God is and what he has done to save his people. And similar themes just keep coming out. You know, it's not of man. Man doesn't get glory. Man doesn't get credit. It's of God. And if you uh, have spent any time in false religion, which I have, and I know some of you have, you've told me about it, told me some of your experiences, having passed from death into life, and, and like Paul had counted a category of self-righteousness that he he listed before, he counted that as loss and dung, D-U-N-G, so that he may look at this other category to be found in Christ, not having his own righteousness, but having the righteousness which is by faith in Christ. And just that, that move from that side to this side and the vast difference coming out of darkness into light, fear and bondage into freedom and liberty and love and peace. That's the difference. And I think that most of us can describe that difference and, and show why and talk about the ins and outs of it. And that's that's pretty much what we do every week when we come here and we open up these different aspects of the Word of God. That's all we're showing is, is what took place there, how that because of the one ground of salvation, what Christ has done, he has moved us from this one category over to here. This is what we were. This is the, the bad things that we had. And this over here are the benefits. And, and we're heirs, joint heirs with Christ. And we're participating in all these spiritual blessings that he's given us that result in all this fruit and all the favor of God and all now the blessings and the peace and all this. And before... It was nothing but wrath and fear and turmoil and bondage. But we didn't know. Back there, there was this seemingly always this burden that we couldn't we couldn't get off. It's just like this guilt, you know, and we just try better, try the start of it. And maybe tomorrow's a new day, I can do better. Maybe I can get... <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember those days, but you're talking about tiresome burden. Now, Christ is where we rest. Christ is our Sabbath. He is our resting place. It's nothing but jubilee. All right, we'll stop.